From Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, Florida, this is The Bible Project 2020, a journey to reading the Bible without fear or frustration. I'm your host, Matt Hotho. On today's episode, our senior pastor, McGray DeVega, and I have a conversation with Dr. Brennan Breed about the book of Daniel in apocalyptic literature. Brennan is associate professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Brennan's research focuses on the reception history of biblical texts, seeking to understand how the communities throughout time have received, interpreted, and interacted with the stories of Scripture. We covered many topics in our discussion, mostly because Daniel brings us closer than any other Old Testament book to the time of Jesus. Some of the stuff in Daniel was written in the second century BCE. In fact, some of our conversation will air as we get closer to the New Testament to set the scene for the century leading up to Jesus's ministry. Now, on to the conversation. Thank you so much for joining our journey here on the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel is one of the more fabled characters in the Bible. There's so much that we have come to know about him, even from our Sunday school days. There's so much we think we know about Daniel, but uh, but there's also a lot about this book that we just don't know and understand. It's such a complicated and rich and textured book. What what do you think are some of the overall themes? The, uh, there are a few main themes that kind of tie together the different parts of the book of Daniel. I'll get into this in more detail in a moment, but just first thing to know is the book of Daniel is made up of some pretty distinct parts. The first six chapters sort of hang together as a story, more like an episodic bunch of stories that deal with one big topic. And then chapters seven through 12 also are episodic. They don't really form a distinct narrative together, but they hang together in terms of their style and their content. So chapters one through six and chapters seven to 12 make really two parts of a book. It's amazing too, they're in two different languages. Basically chapters two through seven is in Aramaic. Chapters 1 and then 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. The book is in these two very distinct parts. And both of them deal with, at least I think, three main themes. And the first theme is the sovereignty of God. Is God really in power? And particularly in moments of crisis. When crisis hits and it seems like you can't find God anywhere, and it seems like you can't find a rhyme or reason to what's going on around you, Is God here? Is God present? Is God in control? So these are the questions that faced Jews in many different points uh, in their history. But at these two different moments at which I would place the the composition of these two different parts of the book, those are really uh, uh, important crises. Um, And the second main theme, I would think, uh, is that the relationship between knowledge and power. And the questions of what is real knowledge? What is true knowledge? What does it mean to know something? Uh, and what is false knowledge, right? When it looks like you know something, but you really don't. Uh, or you know just enough to be dangerous, right? Uh, and then the question about power. Um, who really has the power? Uh, so in the book of Daniel, uh, the theme of uh, who's in power, who's in charge is always uh, the, the main question, I think. Um, as I said in, in the first theme, I think the sovereignty of God, Daniel points to the fact that God is always in control. God is a mysterious power 
that works in hidden, um, confusing ways uh, in the book of Daniel. Uh, so God does not uh, jump out of the clouds like in the, the Exodus, like in the sea crossing and you know, miraculously split the waves and throw the Egyptians into the sea. This, that, that doesn't happen in Daniel. It's these very um, behind the scenes, almost like uh, how God works in the Joseph narratives uh, in the book of, of, of Genesis. Um, so kind of behind the scenes God um, who operates in uh, shadowy, mysterious ways that people um, have access to through knowledge and through, through knowledge really from prayer uh, and knowledge from uh, consulting uh, the traditions and the writings uh, that, that are sacred to, to the community. Uh, and the second uh, idea about power is that true power is found in this uh, posture of humility mm. where one can know what God wants to reveal when God wants to reveal it. That's really power. Mm. And, and that's in contradiction to what looks like power in the book of Daniel, which is, uh, and, and everywhere around us, this kind of facade of power where people who have a lot of, um, uh, they have control of some things like the king in the book of Daniel who gets mad all the time because he actually can't control everything he says he can control mm -hmm. uh, and who has shown the limits of his own power time and again. So power, uh, you know, you can have power to over people's lives in the book of Daniel, but that doesn't give you the power to make them believe what you want them to believe yeah. or to do what you want them to do. Hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's true power. Um, and uh, that, that emerges in different ways. So uh, in the book of Daniel, so uh, th that's the second main theme, knowledge and power. And then the third main theme I think is how to survive <laughs> and how to, uh, including how to maintain integrity. That's mm -hmm. part of survival. How does the Jewish people survive? How do individuals survive as well? And how does one's faith in God survive in the midst of a world that tries to take those very things from, from you? Um, so this is a, a, a book, both parts of the book of Daniel are about a people who, who are minoritized. Uh, they are put in positions of, uh, uh, of oppression. Uh, and subject, subject to the whims of powers that uh, are trying to snuff out their lives. And against that, uh, they have different ways of resisting um, and different ways of hoping. Uh, and so how does one survive but not stick out too much? Uh, so uh, parts of the book of Daniel uh, involve the, the question of like, how, how do we um, uh, find enough power to preserve ourselves while not sticking out enough that everyone else wants to kill us for it. Hmm. Um, so these are some negotiations that have to happen, political, social, theological negotiations that have to happen in the book of Daniel uh, in order to, to think about survival. So the two different parts of Daniel deal with all of these different themes in very different ways, but those are the lynch points, the points that kind of tie and knit uh, the book of Daniel together, if that makes sense. That is such a helpful framework, those three points. Um, and certainly we can see all three of those points evident throughout this book. And it also occurs to me that those three points are not exclusive to Daniel. In fact, that's connecting tissue to many other parts of the Bible, the idea of the sovereignty of God, the relationship of knowledge and power, and the importance of humility, and uh, what to, how to survive and maintain integrity in the midst of crisis. Those are, those are woven in elsewhere in the Bible, but here in Daniel, it's most concentrated, it sounds like. What you're saying is that there's something unique about this moment and unique about this audience to which Daniel's, uh, Daniel is writing that makes these three points particularly helpful. Mm -hmm. The idea of how to survive and maintain integrity without sticking out too much, the story that comes to mind is David's dietary decision um, to subversively eat a different kind of food than the king's food so that he can both maintain his integrity but, but not stick out too much. And the whole idea of, of knowledge and humility 
gosh, the, the lion's den, the fiery furnace, there's so much there about how to be humble and not bow to the powers of the world, but to be faithful to God. Yeah. yeah. So chapter one, if you just kind of look, the, 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 the king brings in some uh, blameless youth, right? Some, uh, some youth that uh, are without physical defect, are versed in handsome and, and uh, versed in all kinds of knowledge and they're wise. I mean, what, what the kings want is to get some, uh, some labor out of these people who have been deported and displaced, but also kind of to show them off, right? I can control the whole world, right? The Persian king did this, where he displayed all the peoples of the world that he had collected. And they're supposed to learn all this stuff. They learn the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They, they get three years of education, and they're supposed to learn basically divination and like uh, this kind of soothsaying. And yeah, all this like, you know, stuff that would have been immoral, right, to an ancient uh, Jew um, and, a, and a contemporary Jew. Uh, but they, but so they're supposed to be educated for three years. They're supposed to work in the king's court. They get new names. These are actually nonsense names that they get. It's kind of like making fun of them even. And the thing is that all of these things are okay to Daniel so far. Daniel is involved in a negotiation when you're, when he's, he's a minority, yeah. uh, a minoritized person in the midst of a majority culture that is trying to use him for their own gain. And so he has to make some choices here. And the choices are, Hey, I'll take the new name. Okay. I'll keep my old name, but I'm going to let you use the new name. And so Daniel is in some way accommodating, um, uh, this foreign culture. Uh, but also he learns what they want him to learn. He knows how to, learns how to write in, in Babylonian and so on. Uh, knows how to speak their language, knows how to work their court, uh, but he resolves that he won't defile himself in verse eight. And so that means that Daniel is holding on to something. He's making a choice. And I think a really important thing that um, uh, theorists of kind of social identity have talked about, all identity revolves around difference and choices mm -hmm. and drawing lines and distinctions. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so all to say like this is under negotiation at this moment in time. It's wow. not terribly clear yet what the lines are, but Daniel's got to draw lines somewhere and he draws them here at food. So Daniel doesn't get caught in chapter one, but he does get like his friends do get caught in chapter three. So the three friends are supposed to worship the statue along with everyone else. These three Jews, the three uh, friends uh, in verse eight are, are denounced uh, by this group of Chaldeans, right? They don't want minoritized people to take over their, what they see as like their turf. So they're going to try to take them down a notch and they're going to point out that they just don't show up. So again, the, uh, this, these three Jewish youth aren't rebelling uh, out, outwardly. They're just not showing up to work that day that you're supposed to bow down, worship the statue. So uh, the, the king gets upset. The king is furious at these guys for not worshiping what the king wants them to worship. So again, humility and you know deference to God, you know, Yahweh is above all and so on. Um, but uh, if they don't worship, they're going to be thrown away into the fire. And at the end of verse 15 there, who is the God? This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Yeah. I love that. Irony, right? Dramatic irony here. But then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answer the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to present a defense to you in this matter. <laughs> they don't say, I got the name of the God for you. It's right here. You know, no, they just, we, we don't even need to fight you about mm. this, right? Yeah. If our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and out of your hand, O king, let him deliver us. Yeah. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. They they believe in the sovereignty of God so strongly right. that they, they can't control God. They can't contain God. They can't command God. They can't even defend God. They just worship. 
Uh, well, this has all been incredibly fascinating about the first six chapters, stories that we think we know uh, well enough. And then there's the whole chapter seven through 12, which is just so spooky and weird. And I know the technical term that we assign to literature like this is apocalyptic. This is not the only place where we see apocalyptic literature in the Bible, but it has a special function, a special character, claims a special voice. The question, of course, is what do we do with the second half of Daniel? This is a great question. Uh, one thing I can say is that there is uh, a, dis- a distinct connection between the first and second part of Daniel, and that is this idea that God's in control of history. Um, if there's anything that you take out of apocalyptic literature, um, I hope uh, it's the idea that even when things seem uh, like it, it's impossible that God would be in control of the world, that in fact, God's still in control mm-hmm. of the world. Um, when the wheels start to come off of the global wagon, uh, the idea is that some, at some point, God is going to decisively intervene. It probably won't look like we, what we expect, and it won't be when we expect, mm-hmm. but uh, God is biding God's time mm-hmm. in the midst of major crises. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing that apocalyptic literature tells us to do, the basic idea is hold on, yeah. trust God, and pass on the faith. Mm. That's the base. I mean, people don't do much in apocalyptic literature. I think that's the important thing. Uh, they're, they're often cast as like kind of mystery stories or as they're retold in the modern world, they're like hero action movies. No one does anything in the book of Daniel uh, except just wait for God to help. No. Um, so that, I think, I think if, we, if we look at it that way, it's important. Also, if we look at it at apocalyptic literature and think all of this stuff in the ancient world um, was written by people who were under intense pressure from uh, a majority community that was trying to, to dominate and oppress and even eradicate them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, when we look at the book of Daniel, uh, chapter seven through 12, we're looking at something that was written in the midst of a major crisis, a crisis that is confusing and uh, unlike any crisis that we know of that happened in the ancient world. The outlines of it are still not terribly clear. Um, we have conf- conflicting ancient sources, um, but at least what ancient Jewish people in Jerusalem uh, write about the year 167 thought was happening to them. 167 BC, so this is much later than the parts of Daniel that were written probably under Babylon and Persian rule sometime around the year, I don't know, 400 BC or something like that. This is much later. Um, And chapter seven through 12 uh, are really about the events of 167 to 164 BC. So all apocalypses are rooted in very specific historical moments and they speak to those historical moments. Mm -hmm. They're able to speak to us too, but not in um, cut and paste ways. Uh, So we have to kind of pay attention to how they spoke to their uh, ancient context so that we can then understand how it might be speaking to us today. And so if we think from the position of a community that is is in danger of being eradicated, that's what happened in 167, uh, uh, a Greek king, the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV uh, decided at least this is how the Jews of the time understood it, decided to wipe out Judaism from the face of the earth, something that had never happened before in the history of humanity. We don't know of anyone who tried to eradicate a religion before that. Uh, Antiochus, uh, the the king, um, threw people off the walls, uh, women off the walls of of, of Jerusalem uh, for uh, having their children circumcised. They would burn the Torah scrolls and murder people for having, possessing Jewish literature. Um, So all to say this, it it was an attempt to take away what they saw as um, their core identity, and that is their worship of Yahweh. Yeah. 
So that was where they couldn't budge. But they, Daniel's all about how we don't have to just fight a revolution. Um, God might intervene. Well, what happened was some of them fought a revolution and they won. <laughs> this is the, the Maccabean revolution, right? Um, uh, Maccabean revolt, um, which turns out it looked like it was amazing. And then they basically turned into the Greeks. That is the kings, even at one generation after Judas Maccabeus uh, were making deals with all of the Roman, you know, Greeks and then later Romans. I mean, you know, this is uh, uh, goes right into Herod. Um, yeah. Herod marries into uh, this uh, Hasmonean family, this family that starts uh, with the revolt. Maybe, maybe Daniel was right in retrospect, uh, but at the time I should, there was there was a conflict. There were other apocalypses written at the time of Daniel seven through twelve that took the opposite uh, stance that the that that this revolt of the 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 actual. Um, uh, a military revolt was the right thing to do. So there's a conflict happening right about the year 167 about what to do. And this Daniel 7 through 12 is a genre, is part of a genre of literature, the apocalypse that made a lot of sense to people in ancient times and maybe makes less sense to us today. But think of it like a political cartoon. Mm. You see these kind of like crazy images of like a donkey and an mm-hmm. elephant talking to each other, fighting, boxing each other. And, you know, people a thousand years from now might say, what the heck was that donkey and elephant wow. stuff way back then? Mm. You know, uh, yeah. now it, we talk about beasts coming from the ocean in Daniel seven and things like this, right? Those are basically political cartoons for ancient empires. Um, and everyone would have understood them. So Daniel chapter eight is a great one to show you this because it talks about a ram and a goat fighting each other and so on. Uh, and Daniel eight actually says there's an angel that interprets this vision. And the angel actually says, uh, and that's uh, verse uh, uh, 20. The ram you saw with the two horns, that's the kings of Media and Persia. So the ram stands for Persia, just like the donkey stands for the Democratic Party, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the male goat in verse 21 of chapter eight is the king of Greece. That's Alexander. So, uh, you know, and this is Alexander the Great versus uh, the Persian king. And then a guy later on in the lineage of Alexander the Great, that's this king Antiochus IV, tries to fight heaven. That is, tries to destroy faith in Yahweh in Jerusalem. So this is all about this kind of, it's like a political cartoon about what's happening in a way. I don't want to diminish it by saying political cartoon because it was it was powerful. Right. Um, but but just to say that that's that style of encoding information yes. in vivid yes. imagery um, and even things like cryptic codes, numerology, um, uh, thinking about ancient voices. Mm. So there's a big, big conflict about what to happen. And if you read Daniel 7 through 12 with that lens on, and then what you see is it's all about telling the people have faith. God will be with you. God is with you right now, even though it doesn't seem like it. And if you look back at like Daniel chapter seven, which Jesus famously quotes, right? Uh, the, the one coming from the clouds, like the son of man is how it's often translated. Um, uh, that words, that phrase son of man, um, it just means a mortal person, um, it, like a, a human being. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily mean genealogical or biological son. Yeah. Uh, so it's a human being was coming out of the clouds. What? How surprising, right? So chapter seven is all about how these foreign emperors in, in these images of beasts are just dominating the world. And where's God? Why isn't God like intervening here and helping us and so on? But then verse nine, suddenly in the without uh, you know, much warning or without letting us know why all of a sudden a court gets set up on earth and God, the ancient of days takes the throne. Why, why wasn't God in power? Like why did God, basically that what it means is God left for a while and let the world fall to bits. And then God decisively sets up power again on earth. Wow. The court shows up again. Now, again, it doesn't explain why. Not, I mean, apocalyptic literature doesn't tell us anything about why this happens. It just tells us it's going to. God is going to come back and God is going to set up divine judgment and God is going to take stock of what happened. And the people who died in the midst of this turmoil, God's going to raise up. That's what chapter 12 says. They didn't die in vain. 
even though it seems like they did, right? God, uh, death can't put you beyond God's saving power. Um, that, that's a, a thing you really first hear in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12. It's not a clear statement in the Old Testament, except for this chapter. Um, and then there's also a divine punishment, which we can read as like, you know, hellfire and brimstone to everybody. But just think about it from the position of an oppressed community mm-hmm. who's watching their, their family and friends be tortured to death for faith in God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Someday there will be justice. Not right now, but God's going to, in the grand scheme of time, God is going to, to decisively intervene and save and punish, right? So uh, now if we take, I think there's an inherent danger in apocalyptic literature. And that's that if we put ourselves not in the position of one like a human being who comes from the cloud, that's like a, a mortal, you know, someone who's kind of like a, this is this is why Jesus uses this phrase, you know, I'm, I'm unexpected. I'm not the savior you thought I would be. I'm one like a son of man who's coming out of the clouds, right? But this is this is the way God decided to work, right? Um, but when we put our, when we think about uh, this from the position of power, uh, and fear. Uh, so apocalyptic literature says, don't fear to the people who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. If we are part of the people who are oppressing others, and then we also get scared, we can use this for terrible, terrible mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. And so that's happened throughout history too. You look mm-hmm. at how people in positions of supreme power have read uh, the apocalyptic literature and then how they thought about other people and their role on earth. It's always to extinguish and exterminate and destroy mm-hmm. all the bad people, which mm-hmm. Daniel never tells you to do. That's mm-hmm. God's job, not yours. Mm-hmm. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's basically one of the one of the themes of the second half of the book of Daniel. It's not yours to give. Um, so all to say, if I'm not being oppressed, when I read the book of Daniel, I need to not think, how am I going to kill all the bad people? Um, I need to think who is in the position of the oppressed right now Mm -hmm. and how in the world can I pray for them? And how in the world can I in some way stand up for them? Mm -hmm. Is there a way that God doesn't, I I don't have to wait for God to intervene in the last day. If I'm part of the powerful, I can say, wait, actually, there's another thing I could do. I could, I could take, take note of the people who are hurt around me and maybe I can try to use my power to fix that. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, if, if, if the, if the Imperial option fails, right. So Nebuchadnezzar becomes a better person in Daniel chapters one through four over a long period of time. If that doesn't work, then God's got another plan. That's Daniel seven through 12. If it, if, if the, the, the reforming of uh, systems and empires doesn't work, God, God can reach in and break things. Yeah. Um, this, uh, like I said, can be used to terrible, um, uh, oppressive use, uh, by certain people, but it can also be, uh, the thing that people need to hear. Um, yeah. what's so rich about your explanation of what apocalyptic literature is, is that it, you can certainly see it in this text. you you describe apocalyptic literature as encoded language, fanciful stories that are rooted in actual historical conflict with a message of persistence, of staying strong, maintaining your belief in God, um, which is a different interpretive lens than the way other people might look at apocalyptic literature. What yeah. you're saying is that that there's a better way to connect these apocalyptic stories to our contemporary setting, not by wedging them into uh, a kind of uh, I- interpretive framework that doesn't doesn't work, but saying this is about oppression and power, and and that's the way that we can apply these things. I think that's exactly right. Um, I, I've uh, uh, co-authored a book. So Carol Newsom, uh, who's at Emory University, amazing, wonderful scholar, she wrote a commentary on Daniel that I highly recommend, um, in part because I wrote little bits of it. Um, but I wrote these little bits after at the end of every chapter that goes through the history of uh, interpretation, or as some people say, reception. How, how do people use these texts? Mm-hmm. What, what affects it? And that was an amazing thing for me to be able to do. I, I learned so much from it, in part to see uh, that what people do with these texts matters. Mm-hmm. 
first of all, but also you can learn about what texts actually are saying or how they can actually be used by, by what's happened with them. Mm. People who have been in situations of oppression have often not read these texts predictively mm. about a particular date or something. What they have tended to do is take the big picture that God is with us in times of distress and that God cares about the people who are being hurt like, you know, this kind of larger biblical theme that God is there for the cry, right? God hears the cry of the right. oppressed. Sometimes God is absent mm -hmm. and that is terrifying. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes God shows up and have faith, uh, try to pass on the faith to others uh, that one day God will sort these things out. I really appreciated the ways Brennan unpacked Daniel, and in particular, the genre of apocalyptic literature. This isn't the first time we've seen this genre in the Bible, and it certainly won't be the last. Throughout Daniel, we are confronted with a theology of exile. What does it mean when all seems lost and God seems absent? This apocalyptic literature in Daniel 7 through 12, as well as the historical context of Daniel 1 through 6, tell the story of how God can bring victory out of defeat. This theme animates the New Testament, but it got its start in these exilic Jewish communities whose texts we've been reading for the last few months. Our thanks to Brennan for highlighting these themes in the book of Daniel and for joining us. We're still worshiping online Sundays at 9.30 and 11 a.m. You can join us on Facebook or at Hyde Park UMC forward slash live. You can also connect with us on Facebook, search for The Bible Project 2020 and request to join. McGray DeVega produced this episode. Monica Largesse provided masterful editing from Austria. And I'm Matt Hotho. I'll see you next week.